0: Внимание, говорит и показывает Москва. В которые мы получили, только что Владимир Путин. Никто в не слушал.
1: Привет. В силу Это Навальный. В Я уже буду свою раз... работу. А сотрудники безответственности гонят вас с новым веком.
0: Battleships, warplanes, brinksmanship and geopolitics on the high seas. What actually happened when Britain's HMS defender sailed from the Ukrainian port of Odessa to the Georgian port of Batumi? How did what appears to have been a routine mission to assert navigation rights in the Black Sea escalate into a military and diplomatic incident between Russia and the West? With Russia and NATO conducting dueling naval exercises in the eastern Mediterranean and Black Seas, tensions are rising. And today, we'll talk about what all that might mean. Hello from my makeshift home studio in Washington, D.C.'s funky Adams Morgan neighborhood, and welcome to the Power Vertical Podcast, which is produced by the University of Texas Arlington's McDowell Center for Global Studies in partnership with the Atlantic Council. My name is Brian Whitmore. I'm your host, I'm an adjunct assistant professor at UK McDowell Center and a non-resident senior fellow at the Atlantic Council's Eurasia Center. And joining me from an undisclosed location in the great Commonwealth of Virginia, where he's hiding out with his two dogs, Ivan the Kochi and Finn the Collie is Military Analyst Michael Kaufman, Senior Research Scientist at the Russia Studies Program at the CNA Corporation, and a Fellow at the Kennan Institute. Welcome back to The Vertical, Michael. There's nobody else I'd rather talk to about these topics. It's great to see you again, and a big hello to Yvonne and Finn.
1: Thanks, Brian, great to be back on your program. I uh, hope, you. hope my dogs don't make too much noise. They're in a background
0: office here with me today. Uh, we'll, we'll, we'll mic them up, and I'll you know, get them on the program. So, Michael, let's start with the HMS Defender incident on June 23rd, which which had me scratching my head in a lot of ways. Putin's called it a complex provocation involving both the UK and the US militaries. My hot take on this at the time of the incident was as follows. The HMS Defender was traveling along an internationally recognized shipping lane on a direct route between the Ukrainian port of Odessa and the Georgian port of Batumi. Russia's claim that the ship violated Russia's territorial waters off the coast of Crimea is absurd, since according to international law, Crimea is Ukrainian territory. Since 2014, Russia has been using incidents like this to make its illegal annexation of Crimea a fait accompli. And in this sense, the incident with the HMS Defender is part of a pattern. Russia's de facto annexed the Sea of Azov and in 2018 fired on three Ukrainian ships traveling through the Kerch Strait between two Ukrainian ports. Um, that time it was Mediupol and Odessa, if my memory serves me correctly, holding the ships and 24 captured sailors for more than six months. Michael, is there something here I'm not seeing? Is this just another part of this pattern of Russia trying to legitimize and create a fait accompli around its addition of Crimea? Or is there something else going on here?
1: Well, I think the, the episode is definitely worth uh, looking at and commenting on because you know you have increasingly uh, people using freedom of navigation operations to challenge what are de facto impositions of sovereignty right over these claimed territorial waters by Russia. The Brits actually did something just like this last October with HMS Dragon. In fact, Gerasimov commented on it that morning as he was talking about what happened to the Defender, with HMS Defender. The question is why? Why was the Russian reaction so outsized this time around compared to even last year? And what were they were trying to do with this episode? Why were they trying to turn into a much larger incident than it really was? Because the truth is that what happened between you know HMS Defender and and the Russian Navy and uh, Russian Coast Guard is is really much less than meets the eye, right? The, the actual story of what happened is. They, along with Everson, uh, a Dutch frigate that was there with Mm -hmm. HMS Defender, people forget there's actually a Dutch frigate there with them in the Black Sea as well. Uh, Mm -hmm. Defender wasn't alone. They're part of a mixed carrier strike group. The rest of the British carrier strike group was in the Eastern Mediterranean, and they together went into the Black Sea, right, to to participate in sea breeze and these other events. So as you said, they were cutting a corner through these claimed Russian waters to an established maritime separation channel, claiming right of innocent passage. You had russian planes flying over them you had russian coast guard basically approaching them and and giving them warnings and, and threats and the like and well the coast guard ships are slower than hms defender actually so eventually they couldn't catch up an hms defender essentially was leaving and then they fired some shots with the 30 millimeter gun that they have on board way in the distance i don't i don't think anybody from hms defender even saw it so sort of like a parting salute you know because because Coast Guard ships tend to be slower, I don't think the Russian Coast Guard actually could have even caught up to Defender as, they, as the ship was right. leaving, leaving these claimed territorial waters. All right, what happened? First of all, Russians clearly knew they were coming. You know, according to videos from the Defender, there was a Russian Corvette waiting for them as they were about to depart Odessa. So they were being tracked the whole the whole way. Uh, second, it wasn't a uh, particularly dangerous or close incident. And then after the fact, right, after this happened— Somebody who's in charge of PR decided to spin this completely wild story that uh, you know shots were fired at or in front of HMS Defender, which totally wasn't true. And and then and then the you know Su twenty fours were dropping, you know, OFAB two fifty bombs in front of HMS Defender, which didn't happen. And also didn't make any sense. I mean, any person with basic military understanding knows that dropping fragmentation bombs World War II style in front of a ship is not something that you do. That's not how you even threaten a ship with anti-ship weapons, right? Russia has plenty of anti-ship weapons and, and that isn't one of them. So it's not a practical story. It's the kind of story that a PR person would make up, if this mm-hmm. makes any sense.
0: But yeah, I know no, it does.
1: Or, yeah, like, like, but not the sort of person that somebody with decent military knowledge or awareness would make up about the incident. So they tried to create it into a big political concept, right? Because they're... They're looking to, I think, one, in some respects, isolate Ukraine, and they know that Brits did this to highlight their cooperation with Ukraine, and the fact that they have have new defense cooperation with Ukraine as well. Um, And and they really want to turn us into an episode in part for a domestic political audience as well, Mm. right? And they sort of made this sound like this epic fight of the Russian Navy and
0: Coast Guard against this one destroyer. So, I mean, I, I want to kind of unpack each of these two things we're talking about here, because one thing, what was the UK trying to do? And you you would agree with me, it was nothing more than a simple freedom of navigation exercise to, to prove that, you know, to, to reiterate that this is not your territorial waters. This is internet. This is actually Ukraine's territorial waters, and we have the right to sail in them. It was the UK trying to do anything else there.
1: So chiefly, yes. I mean, there's always a military back end on us where, you know, you have the UK and you also will have the United States. There were typically U.S. intelligence collection aircraft up in the air. They're looking to to see Russian mm-hmm. reactions, see if they can learn anything from the Russian military response. Right. There's a data collection mm-hmm. component aspect of it, but most of it's a political is political signal primarily. Right. And And, and, and to show. British interests and and sort of British support for partners in the Black Sea region, right? Like that's right. it's primarily political. The military back end's always there. I won't lie, but but right. it's it's a much lesser component. I mean, you don't do this just because you don't you don't engage in this kind of in this kind of act just because you're interested in some data collection. <laughs>
0: Right, 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 and this was done not unilaterally, but in coordination, probably with the U.S. and the NATO allies, I would imagine. Um, now, Putin's spun that into an elaborate, you know, provocation involving a U.S. plane and all this other stuff. But I mean, it's it's a stance to reason that Britain wouldn't do this unilaterally; they would do it in in in, in consultation with the allies. No?
1: Yeah, absolutely. And 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 the reaction was entirely generated on the Russian end. I mean, they're the ones that blow it right. up this episode, right? So sort of. And, and, and it's sort of retro. It's a post hoc rationalization, as though UK and the US knew that they would try to turn us into into this whole fiasco, and that we're somehow premeditatively responsible for their reaction. Yeah, you know, which right, they, right, they, right. They, they didn't make it that big of a deal. The last right. time it claimed innocent passage.
0: Right. And and the U.K. was trying to play this down. Um, And the drama, the the, the dramaturgy on the Russians part, because that's basically what it was. I mean, the inaccurate claims that it dropped bombs and fired in the uh, maybe they fired in the ships. Putin's claim it was a planned U.S.-U.K. provocation. I mean, that all depends what you mean by the word provocation. But was this dramaturgy just for domestic political purposes or is there a geopolitical international political purpose to this as well?
1: No, they, of course, want to intimidate others because the Russian goal is to make sure that other countries don't try to do this, Brian. I mean, it's imperative upon them to impose sovereignty claims and to make clear to other countries that, look, if you try to do these sort of phone these kind of things to challenge Russia's claims, maybe you're not the United States and you're not the UK, but you're somebody else who thinks about doing this. That, look, there will be potential consequences, and they're trying to introduce risks. They want it to be a higher risk scenario to right. deter others from doing it. Yeah, there is a reason for it. It's not just kind of loose
0: talk, yeah. Right, right. And this is not dissimilar to what China's doing in the South China Sea, basically. It's, 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 it's almost identical, actually, to what China's doing in the South China Sea with all these uh, these 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 manufactured so-called islands. Um, now, what I wanted to do here, Michael, is kind of use this little story to tell a bigger story, because this didn't happen in isolation. This happened in an area that's become the Black Sea, which has become an area of kind of ongoing low intensity conflict Russia is constantly intercepting US and UK aircraft in international airspace military aircraft of course um, there there were the mock attacks on the on, 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 on the on this Dutch frigate southeast of Crimea so there's a lot yeah I mean almost every day if you Google you know um, aircraft intercept Black Sea, Russia, you'll come up with something. Right? It's, um, it's, it's it's almost constant. Why is is this anything new or different? Is, is there a reason the Black Sea is turning into this contested zone at the moment?
1: I mean, qualitatively is different just because the resurgence of Russian military power along what they call the sort of southwest strategic direction, you know, running from that southern military district through Crimea, the Black Sea down to the eastern med, has changed tremendously, much more sort of uh, in kind and in degree. You know, in the Baltic Sea, yes, you have tension. You also have a lot of military, mill on mill force interactions. Uh, but there you see changes in degrees, where in the Black Sea, it's really more of a change in kind, right? You have major territorial disputes after Russia's annexation of Crimea. You have a host of naval exercises and increased presence by NATO member states who are trying to shore up, right, both allies and partners in the region because they understand the Russian military power in the region is growing as is. To some extent assertiveness or claims right so the interaction there i think is is, is far more tense because of that and because of the dramatic changes that have happened since 2014. Like, if we go to the baltic we actually we will see changes but there'll be more changes in degree and i hope, I hope that part of the story
0: makes sense um, yeah no it does it does i mean another way i see this is the black sea is effectively the maritime front line between Russia and NATO in a lot of ways. Um, And if you look at the map of the Black Sea at first glance, it looks really good for the Western side, basically, right? You have, I mean, at first glance, superficially, if you look at it initially, you have NATO members, Bulgaria, Romania, and Turkey. Um, You have NATO partners, Georgia and Ukraine, and then you have Russia, right? So you basically, it looks like a NATO link. At first glance, but then when you look at it a little bit deeper, you say mm, Turkey's not always the most uh, reliable ally um, in the Black Sea, and they control the passage, right? Oh. Um, and Bulgaria is not always the most solid ally in the Black Sea, um, and uh, Romania's solid. Um, Ukraine and Georgia have contested territories where the Russians are claiming territorial, ter- ter- you know, d- d- territorial uh, maritime rights. So then suddenly it looks like a, a Russian lake if you look at it that way. Which is it, or yeah. what
1: is? It? I I would say it's definitely. To, I'm going to lean more to your latter analogy, and and it's and it's quite worse from my point than the Baltic. The reason why is look, territory doesn't fight. You need to have ships, submarines, aircraft capability, right? Right. Territory by itself on the map, when people used to tell me stories that they look at the map or something else, and they imagine it's a NATO lake. Well, it's nice to look on the map and imagine things, but for, from a Black Sea, when you look at it, you basically have two kinds of countries. You have countries with real capability like Turkey who aren't necessarily going to fight or support U.S.-NATO interests. You don't know. Russians believe that Turkey has an independent foreign policy, and they've successfully separated them within NATO. And you know what? We can debate that fact, but that's probably a pretty good argument. You can make that argument, I think. Well, I
0: I mean, there is evidence for that. If you you recall the the, the NATO summit in Warsaw— when there was serious movement to create a flotilla in the black NATO flotilla in the Black Sea the Romanians wanted it the Americans certainly wanted it um it, it the, the the Brits wanted it it was scuttled by basically Bulgaria and Turkey at the time so that's that 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 to me was was the wake-up call but go ahead I, I interrupted yeah
1: you. well the other part I was gonna say is you do have some staunch supporters but they're principally country without much capability to contribute no offense to uh Romania or to Ukraine and uh Georgia, but let's be very frank, the capability that, that that really contributes to security environment in the Black Sea is not that substantial relative to the capability that Russia's fielding and relative to Russia's ability, right, to increase its actual uh prospect for sea denial and sea control, that is the ability to attain superiority, naval superiority in the Black Sea. So you're kind of now left where you have you have Partners and allies who have real capability, but are, aren't necessarily going to uh, fight or support you in your interests, and you have ones that will support you in your interests, but don't have much in the way of capability. Right, right. right. So this is where you end up, and that's not a happy place. And I can tell a much better, happier story about the Baltic than I can about the Black Sea.
0: Yeah, no, we'll have to do the Baltic for 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 a more 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 of a good news podcast right. at some point. But what is, I mean, looking projecting these current trends forward. Um, does this mean that the Black Sea is effectively going to become a Russian lake and NATO is going to be denied access to it unless something changes politically in Turkey? Um, or is the, the, is the burden going to be all on the shoulders of the US and the UK to basically assert these basic navigational rights in the Black Sea, I mean, this is an important trade zone as well as an area of military contestation and free navigation of the Black Sea is, 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 is important. And if Russia is going to start denying it that uh, based on false territorial claims, that puts us in, in not a good place given that this is the main maritime border between Russia and NATO.
1: So I, I think in all honesty, it will remain a contested space, right? It's not going to be a space that's necessarily dominated by Russia but Russians will be able to tell themselves a relatively good story about the, their ability to at least achieve kind of windows of airspace and naval superiority. I think the biggest you have in the Black Sea is you will you will need sustained presence by the United States and other powers in order, right, to galvanize a particular position among states that are littoral Black Sea states that without the sort of I would say external input might not be very cohesive, could easily be picked off by Russia, right, or um, or Intimidated Because that's the reality. The power balance in and of itself favors Russia in all cases on a bilateral relationship basis. And that's obvious. Russia by itself is the strongest power in Europe, right? right. So Russia can, in fact, push buttons and coerce individual states in a space right. like that if there are no other actors. I don't have to sell you that. I think it's almost self-evident.
0: Yeah, yeah. And they, they, are, they are using all sorts of malign influence campaigns, disinformation, strategic corruption, and otherwise – to 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 basically pry weak links uh in on the nato chain away in, in this case Uh, bulgaria and turkey you see them doing similar things in central europe and the and on the land kind of border between between russia and nato and they're doing it they're doing it in 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 the black sea i've I've spoken about this in the past how this non-kinetic uh malign influence campaigns are affecting this you know the real on the ground security in different regions and that's certainly the case in the black sea but if it remains a contested area going forward that, is, that assumes that these incidents like this are going to continue. Incidents of Russia intercepting U.S. and, and, and U.K. military aircraft in international airspace is going to continue. Um, things, incidents like the HMS Defender are going to continue. What is the chance that one of these things could accidentally go kinetic and get serious?
1: I mean, look, it's possible because individual commanders or pilots can make mistakes. But I wouldn't overplay that that's going to lead into conflict. And I'll be very, very frank here. You know, I'm not a believer in accidental war theory. Wars have political causes. When incidents happen, leaders have a choice. Are they looking for a war? That is, do they believe that they they can use force to achieve their political goals? And then they want to use this episode, this incident, as a cause's belly, right, as an excuse to go to right. war. Or are they going to try to minimize and mitigate it? I will tell you this, that Putin's comments after the fact where he said, you know what, in the future if this happens again, we can just sink this destroyer, right? And I don't well, think is, much will yeah, happen. This is where happens. I wanted to go. And, 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 and folks had wondered, folks would wonder about that, like, is he serious? Does he does he really think that way, or was or he just saber-rattling what's happening? I will say two things on that. First one will probably be comforting, which is I really think that in that case— he, he was saber-rattling, and a lot of it's meant for domestic audiences and sort of the Russian elite selectorate, which likes this kind of big, macho, great power talk, you know, we just sink them. And plus, you know, Russians have, like, as we say, a bayezine, like, reaction to right. the British. There's something about British in particular yes. that really, really gets Russians to react. I'll just be very frank. I honestly <laughs> believe that if it was a Spanish destroyer or something like that or a Spanish frigate, you probably would have seen a different story coming out from the mm-hmm. Russian end. There's something about the United States and something about Brits in particular that, that gets Russians going, um, and this could be, you know, uh, sort of the banality of historical rivalries and this historical uh, animus. But however you want to frame it, but no, there is something visceral about the British yeah. that gets the Russians going. Yeah, it's true. Absolutely. and it is historical. It really is. It it is um, the the elite and the reaction to this interaction with Brits is a, is is definitely something I've noticed over years in this field. Um, but the other part, of Brian, this part will be, I think, discomforting. So what Putin was speaking to does reflect, to some extent, a, a pretty well-established uh, understanding of, hey, th- there's interaction between stability and instability, right? When, a, when you're thinking about military deterrence in big picture terms, that when a country has a lot of conventional military power and a lot of nuclear capability as well, they're pretty confident that they can deter their opponents. Right? So what he's kind of reflecting a bit is a well-known paradox in our field that, look, if he sinks a British destroyer, of course there will be consequences. Right. There will be all sorts of consequences for Russia. right? Russia will be treated as a, as a rogue state. There'll be sanctions. There'll be outcry, whatnot. But on the back end, he also knows what's going to happen. Is Britain going to go to war with Russia? Russia can deter Britain. right? right. Russia has enough conventional <clears throat> capability and enough, certainly more than enough, uh nuclear capability, that he's confident that there won't be a war, right? Because countries are not going to want to go to war, Russia just over a destroyer. That's very clear. And in that part, believe it or not, technically, there he has a dangerous point, that is, the yeah. stronger a country is militarily, the more it actually can afford itself to engage in very provocative acts. That is true. And we've seen that in the last 10 years. And that's the relationship between, you know, the direct military competition. And right. indirect warfare, which you tend to focus on a lot. And I always say that one, one really enables and accommodates the other. You can really you can really take on way more risk
0: when you're confident militarily. So the game Putin is playing here is to get us and the Brits to cut it out and stop it, stop asserting you know, freedom of navigation rights through what they claim are their territorial waters, but nobody else in the world recognizes their territorial waters, to create a fait accompli. That's effectively what they're trying to do here. And... If we continue to assert, uh, we meaning the West, continue to assert uh, freedom of navigation rights across these waters that are in fact not Russia's territorial waters, but Russia claims they they are, then there is a risk that a U.S. or a U.K. A destroyer could be sank by the Russians. That that is it, it, that that is a very real possibility. I'm just trying to be really. I, this this is. So-
1: I, I think I'll be frank. I think it's a very low risk. I mean, I always think there's a risk of a military incident or an accident, especially when you have force-on-force interactions like this. But I, I fundamentally think that that risk is low. Now, that's my that's my personal right. looking looking, um, looking at Russia still principally as a, a calculating actor, right? Where a lot of things are said and they're said to intimidate and they're said to shape you know, the behavior of, of, of countries and leaders, but that, but that serious people in Russia don't really think that they can just sink a British destroyer or would right. want to, right? right. Or would actually want to. Um, and, 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 now I still very much hold to, but yeah, of course, it's a very possible. The Donald Cook episode back in the Baltic sea, a su 24 flying below the mass line. Well, he can easily get that wrong in the Cold War that happened all the time. There are famous right. incidents, you know, where, uh, entire crews died, ships ran into ships. I mean, there were all sorts of episodes like that. They didn't lead to war, all right? But they're not things that you should look at with, with survivorship bias by saying, well,
0: all of these turned out okay,
1: so it's fine to take on these kind of risks.
0: Right, right. So if you, I mean, you're you're somebody who is listened to by people who make decisions on these kinds of things. Um, you know Russian military thinking. If you were advising whatever, US, UK, NATO, should we continue doing this? Is this a good idea to, continue? I think yes, but I don't know the military minutia like you do.
1: Yeah, so my view on that is probably, yes, we're appropriate, yes, where it makes sense, but not very often, right? We are looking to prevent the sort of customary uh, uh, imposition of these territorial claims, right? Because if right. they're not challenged over, let's say, some X period of time, then it becomes clear as, in, as custom, right, international custom to others that these claims stand up the whole. So if they're not challenged, then other countries will de- will de facto see them this way, Brian. Right. But, but we also should be careful not to engage in this very frequently because we have to accept that each time we're taking on some degree of risk, right? So right. it's the kind of thing you do, but it's not the kind of thing you do every Wednesday. Right.
0: right. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> right. Or every Tuesday, exactly. right. I mean – the- before we move on to the kind of the broader picture of these exercises, I also wanted to touch on something that's kind of fallen out of the news, but the the, the de facto Russian annexation of the Sea of Azov back in 2018 when they closed the Kerch Strait between Crimea and, and, and Russia – um, effectively denying Ukraine the ability to get out of their port of Mediupol and navigate those waters. Is that a lost cause? Is there anything that can be done there? Or we basically, is that another fait accompli that we're going to have to live with? Is there any way we can assert freedom of navigation rights there? Uh, should a U.K. <laughs> destroyer sail from Mediupol to Odessa, for example, along that exact same route that those Ukrainian ships were sailing?
1: Why would you get in there? I mean, there's a bridge, and they use a very large ship to block passage. So it's over. It's basically over. For us, yeah. Ukrainians can actually ship their armored patrol boats by rail into the Sea of Azov, so they are not blocked. They can, in fact, Uh transport. They have a Mosquito fleet. It's a very small navy, but it's a little Mosquito navy nonetheless. They actually can, by rail, transit it over to the Sea of Azov and— and deploy their uh, armored boats there, but for anybody else with you know that needs to e- enter uh, Sea of Azov, yeah, I'll be frank, it is over. That's a lost cause, and we should focus on the rest of the Black Sea. That's right. So
0: I mean, there's, not, there's nothing whatsoever we can do about that.
1: That's... I mean, I'm from a naval perspective, no, they they have uh-huh. a bridge and they can block uh, access and egress, so it's over. I mean, I, there's no, there's I, I don't see I I don't see a way of really of really forcing that situation. Right. Plus, you know, I always suggest: look, if you wanna you wanna be choosy about the fights you pick, and you wanna pick fights where you're in a good position, relatively uh, in terms of uh, your actual ability to execute the mission and and the prospects for escalation. So, from my point of view, that's not the fight to pick. The cutting through that corner of Russian territorial claims on an established maritime separation channel, for the Brits—that's actually not a bad—that's not a bad argument to pick. I think one lesson from that might be is. You know, as always, they need to get on the PR a little bit better and faster. It was their mission. They had the defense journalist on board, so they should have been a little bit uh, faster to the punch in terms of explaining what happened. Instead instead of the Russians were out there first, trying to confirm and disconfirm things Russia said and what might have happened. And I, like you, was sort of watching us going, isn't this your operation? Shouldn't you be the— Right, Right. right. The, the, this the is course. where the
0: russians caught them off guard with the information operation here uh, in, in, which which basically defined because for the first several days i remember reading the news reports on this and trying to figure like what the hell happened here you know yeah. i couldn't say i mean i knew i knew these freedom of navigation exercises were routine but what actually happened here what were the facts on the ground i couldn't figure it out for, for the longest time and i think that was kind of the point the russians got their narrative out there created their dramaturgy created their scandal, and then and, and that served their purposes. I guess maybe that would be the main lesson learned from this one: is get the messaging right, because this is probably going to happen again. Yeah, I've seen
1: it before. You know, we do fun ops in the Pacific in uh, uh, Peter the Great Bay, which I don't think that many people know or care about, but we do every couple of years fun ops with a U.S. destroyer um, to challenge excess Russian uh, territorial claims in the Pacific. And usually uh, the Russian PR story usually is that they sort of launch a story of ships, and they typically tell this fable of how they drove the U.S. destroyer off, right? And right. and and, we, and to be frank, the balance between those two stories is usually I think the Russian narrative gets better play, or at least gets more play, and then you're sort of left reconciling with the U.S. saying, no, nothing exciting happened; we were just ch- challenging excessive territorial claims, right? Um, and so so often in in a. Con- in, you know there's a there's a discursive contest, which I don't have to tell you because this is actually your space. You're much more knowledgeable Great. in it right? There's a discursive and a narrative contest and there they may they may often actually tend to do better, as opposed to what happened on the ground in, in practice.
0: Right, right. No, they do seem much more concerned with the narrative than what's actually happening on the ground. and That's a, a good place to shift gears. In a few moments, we will continue our discussion and take a look at the dueling naval exercises being conducted by Russia and NATO in the Eastern Mediterranean and Black Seas, respectively. And, oh, by the way, Russia's massive Zopic 2020 military exercises with Belarus are just months away. I'd like to remind you, you are listening to the Power Vertical Podcast, which is produced by the University of Texas Arlington's McDowell Center for Global Studies in partnership with the Atlantic Council. I'm your host. My name is Brian Whitmore. I'm an adjunct assistant professor at the UK McDowell Center and a non-resident senior fellow at the Atlantic Council's Eurasia Center. Joining me from an undisclosed location in the great commonwealth of Virginia is the one and only Michael Kaufman, a military analyst and senior research scientist at the Russian Studies Program at the CNA Corporation and a fellow at the Kennan Institute. I'd also like to remind you. you can subscribe to Power Vertical Podcast on iTunes, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, SoundCloud, and TuneIn. And if you do, please leave us a rating and review because it helps our visibility. You can also access the podcast, read the Power Vertical blog, and access all Power Vertical products at PowerVertical.org. And you can follow us on the Twitter at Power Vertical. Кадры, которые мы получили, только что Владимир Путин
1: не слушал. А сотрудники
0: безопасности. Military exercises can be a prelude to war. They can be an elaborate psyop, or they can be, well, just military exercises. Thirteen years ago, the guns of August were preceded by the maneuvers of July. When Russia's Kavkaz 2008 military drills preceded its injection. Four years ago, fears that Russia's Zapa 2017 exercises would be a prelude to an occupation of Belarus or other military action turned out to be unfounded. In the end, Zapa 2017 ended up being just a big, loud psyop. Likewise, last year's Kavkaz 2020 exercises, which took place amid rising tensions in the Black Sea region, turned out to be relatively uneventful. Michael, at the moment, we have NATO conducting its sea breeze exercises on the Black Sea. Russia is conducting its own air and naval military drills in the eastern Mediterranean. And come September, the massive russian belarusian Zapad 2021 exercises will kick off in the midst of an escalating political crisis in Belarus and an escalating conflict between Belarus and the, and the West. Let's start with the dueling exercises in the Black Sea and the eastern Med. And then we can move on to Zopard. Um, what do you see of note in the naval and air exercises we are currently witnessing on both sides?
1: Um, I'd probably make two points here. First, for the sort of British mixed uh, carrier strike group, and, in which you have uh, Dutch and, and also uh, some US ships participating, for them, this is probably their largest real naval sortie in a very, very long time. You know, they have a new carrier, a uh, new crew, they're practicing training. Uh, this is significant deployment for them, so they're they're looking to learn quite a bit, and they're actually looking to learn quite a bit from interaction with Russian forces. This, you know, a force-on-force interaction that's not that's not planned is probably one of the the best way to to, to generate these kind of lessons and experience for, yeah. um, you know, for the 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 Royal Navy on the Russian end. You know, we continue to see changes to Russian presence in Syria, and I want to highlight so. Two things have been happening over recent years, uh, for the, for those who may not follow or, or uh, this is closely, One, Tartus is really being built up into a serious naval base and replenishment point, right? That's a place where you see two Russian diesel submarines parked on a permanent basis. They're able to reload, rearm. It's a much more significant naval facility than what it was some years ago. The second part is al Air Base, right? They've they mm. basically rebuilt a second runway. So now they can land much larger aircraft there. And so what's happening in this past week is they transferred Tu-22 bombers over to Alhamaim Air Base, along with MiG-31Ks. And so they have a host of anti-ship weaponry, right? Anti-ship right. Uh, uh, missiles, uh, kh 32s on, on these bombers. They have the Kinzhal and the MiG-31K. And they're using the British deployment as an opportunity to essentially conduct strike missions right to train strike
0: missions uh-huh. against nato ships so they're you know so they're are, kind are, of playing their exercises off of nato's exercises
1: bingo bingo it's a skirmish and they are they're essentially using the the british carrier strike group as uh as a target right and they're and they're engaging in a skirmish so now you have an eastern med you have british f-35s right up in the sky over russian ships you have the Russian Eastern Mediterranean Squadron, guided missile cruiser Slava with a whole bunch of ships there. Actually, a substantial part of the Black Sea fleet is not in the Black Sea, it's in the Eastern Med, right? Uh-huh. And you have and you have anti-ship bombers and MiG-31Ks also up there practicing queuing, targeting against British ships. And, and one thing that was important about the change in the Black Sea, Brian, is that when when the Russian military was able to more effectively secure right, their ability to exercise control over the Black Sea, they can then effectively project power into an adjacent sea, which was the eastern Mediterranean. For Russian ships, that's like the Far Sea Zone, and their goal is to be able to engage U.S. NATO forces there in the Met, not necessarily in the Black Sea, to keep the fight that far out. That's kind of the Russian objective. That's why I see a permanent standing Russian squadron uh, in in the eastern Mediterranean, right? And you're seeing them showing that they could transfer— much more substantial aircraft off of my airbase and conduct strikes from there.
0: This is so it's almost like, I mean, it's not almost like it's like both sides are rehearsing a war, with the other side actually present. It's almost like they're conducting joint opposing exercises at the same time. How unusual is this? I mean, to be frank,
1: it's it's symptomatic of of where the confrontation is going in some ways we've sort of we've sort of almost routinized the confrontation and institutionalized mm-hmm. it such that the two militaries are regularly interacting with each other using the other side as their opponent as that sort of red force as you would tend to call it
0: right right or
1: op for op for as you might call it opposing force in uh in military exercise and war games and um and 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 drawing these lessons from each other so a big part of both sides operations tends to be tracking each other drawing those lessons collecting all sorts of signals electronic intelligence from the two sides and then using that to think harder and better about how to fight your how to fight your adversary
0: so you see that does this benefit one side more than the other or is it pretty much a wash
1: yeah that's a really interesting question some some debate on that so i actually. I actually started something being on Twitter saying that I think the Russian side benefits more than the British. But then the people uh, who follow the Brits much closer say, actually, the British crew and the ship are brand new, Mike, because because I'm, you know, I'm okay. I'm thinking I'm thinking in some ways as Americanist, right? With a, with right. a kind of U.S. centric point of view that you know carrier strike group deployment for the United States is uh, old hat and it's something that's taking place all around the world every day. And and the folks that follow the Royal Navy better than I do, I'm going to give it to them. Say, hey. This is a brand new carrier. This is a large deployment in a long time. We have a lot to learn. So actually, we might be learning more than the Russians in this case, because for us, there's a lot here to be taken in. And, you know, and I always take that point in kind, right? Like that's 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 the reality. So so I think I think actually the Brits might even get more out of it than the Russians in this specific episode.
0: It's really surreal. It's, it's a dress rehearsal for a war, which is, which, is, which is pretty amazing when you think about it from somebody kind of outside the military sphere like myself. I, I know, Michael, when you watch these exercises, whatever exercises, you're trying to learn. You're looking for signals. You're trying to learn what strategies and tactics are being deployed, what's changing in, in, in military thinking, military doctrine, military strategy. What are you seeing right now? Are you seeing anything of note? Are you seeing anything interesting at the moment? so for me
1: as always uh i'm kind of looking at what am i going to get out of zappa 2021 what's going to happen in this exercise what are we going to see where you know i think that uh looking across the russian military i see first sustained military spending and modernization those who think that something's declining in russian defense spending or the russian budget or there's something flagging in terms of russian military procurement that's just not the case okay Mm. second looking what's happening to russian force and force structure well it's expanding in size they're continuously turning brigades into divisions uh and they're buying more and more gear third they're not really expanding the force so it's actually they're taking a real decrement in readiness right because they're but the actual personnel size isn't growing as fast so you see that they're kind of building out to the future and they're hoping that down the line they'll have money to expand the force itself in in essence what we're kind of seeing brian is sort of let's say uh, imagine you buy you buying a you see somebody buying a larger house and you you think that they're expect they're going to grow into it right that they're going to fill it and so what's happening in russian force structures you see them expanding it and and so you can see kind of what years from now that the russian military is gonna mm-hmm. be bigger more divisions more armor maneuver battalions artillery battalions and the like um and you also see increasing growth in uh in in, in terms of modernization and capability going further and further north right towards the the uh, northern parts of Western military districts so you're you know this is kind of this this is what I find interesting um and as always uh folks have big questions on okay well given all the challenges Russia has are they going to be able to deploy the next generation of military technology to effectively compete to the 2020s and and my view on that generally is Yes, it's looking that way. You it's tend like to be
0: Russia. bullish on the Russian military. That, that, that I that do happened.
1: because because all the people who were pessimists were consistently proven wrong. And I was in right. the Department of Defense where people were looking at Russian military reforms. They got launched late 2008 and said, "Not going to happen here. They're not going to make it." You know, these dated views of late late 1990s. And will be no offense. They're pretty chauvinistic views about drunk Russians in 1990s and and negative experiences the U.S. saw. Right. Uh, uh, you know, U.S. policymakers or leaders may have had. And so these views colored them and their expectations on the Russian military. And then in spring of 2014, Brian, they were unpleasantly yeah. surprised by events yes. that unfolded. And a very different looking Russian military uh, was acting in Crimea and in eastern Ukraine. And, and so I kind of, you know, I lived through that. Everybody takes and less right. performative years, right, professionally. And, and I understood what went wrong. And it went wrong again in Russian intervention in Syria. Remember, everybody said it was going to be a yeah. quagmire- Oh, I was one. I was one of them. <laughs> there. Russian Air Force can't do anything straight. They won't succeed. You know, the, we've heard this. So, at some point, right. we, you know, like theory has to check him with
0: practice. So, Sergey reforms from two thousand eight basically paid off. He's the hero. I mean, if you're on the Russian side, he's the hero of this story in a lot of ways, yeah. ironically. Not uh, in the Russian military. Don't say that, Brian. <laughs> yeah, no, but <laughs> but, not but at the end of the day, he turned out to be right. Right. I mean, he I think was, re- he was more resistance. right than wrong.
1: I think the right. Russian military would say that he broke more than he fixed. I would say that all the piecemeal reforms they, they conducted until then were insufficiently successful to the point that it took Putin appointing someone like Syriko, right, to fundamentally reform the military. And yes, he got a lot of things wrong. That's true. And so did Makarov under him, the chief of general staff at the time. But nonetheless, he was very... He, he did make a, a substantial positive impact. He'll continue to be debated as a controversial figure, I have right. no doubt. So I don't want to come in like as some Syriko fan, but I just want to say yes. They did actually get quite a bit right in, in changes and
0: reforms. I, mean, I don't even know what happened to him I, I, I after his resignation. I, he's, he's kind of disappeared from from public uh-huh. view. Uh, I haven't I haven't heard a thing about him. Well, in the, in the oh, time, on, rem- right?
1: what's that? One no one disappears like that in Russia. He disappeared for a while. Then he came back. He came back he as head kind of Ross Helicopters. And oh, he's, and okay, Ross he said, okay, he said, okay, this uh, idea rehabilitated. Don't uh, worry, he's not poor suffering somebody. I'm not worried. <laughs> <He's
0: not doing, laughs> that's that's Ryan, what I was If you and I, I did as well as Syrdicove, we would be in better shape, trust uh, me. Uh, I I figured he popped up someplace like yeah. that. but He fell in the public view. Um, oh, yeah. <laughs> what I want to do in the remaining time, of course, is talk about Zop. It's sure. We're probably going to return to this Come you know, as we get closer to September, you and I on this program. Um, but every, every time there's Zapid and every time there's Kafka's, there's fears that this is going to turn into something. I call it the 2008 syndrome um, yeah. because the Kafka's exercises immediately preceded the, 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 the war in Georgia. Last time, there were serious concerns. There was a kind of a collective freakout uh, back in 2017 about Zapid, which was, was funny because I was in Lithuania at the time. If there is a country in the world that had something to worry about, if there was something to worry about, it was indeed Lithuania um, and Poland. Um, and I remember talking to the then foreign minister, Lina about it. And I said, how, what, you know, are you, are you worried? He's like, no, we got this. This is fine. I'm like, all right, if the Lithuanian foreign minister is not worried, I'm not going to be worried. But this time we got a totally different political context in Belarus. Remember back in 17, Lukashenko was trying to make nice with the West. He was bending over backwards to reassure Belarus's neighbors that there's not going to be any shenanigans. He was bringing in observers, including NATO observers. To 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 look at the portions of the uh, and this created tension between Lukashenko and Putin and between the Russian and Belarusian generals. In my understanding, this time we got a totally different political context. This time we have, as as you've pointed out and I've I've cited endlessly, you have these constant military exercises, which has created a de facto permanent Russian presence in Belarus already. You have signals that Russia's that Belarus is going to acquiesce in that air base in eastern Belarus. You have talk of this so-called joint training center in Krodna, which is you know near the Polish and Lithuanian border um, I don't haven't seen any details on that yet and we got Zappa coming up is this the time when we should be crying wolf
1: so my general sense is, you know I'm a conservative analyst and and the answer on that is no but Zappa is something you have to watch pretty closely right and it could be a time where you have to plus up a bit on your media deterrence that is when you're rotating forces what kind of forces you actually have Deployed in the Baltic region or Poland. Usually large-scale military exercise from a country like Russia is a time where you sort of ante- you, you naturally have much heightened levels of, of, of alert for your forces. You're anticipating that look, the exercise is unlikely to be a pretext, but you can never know for sure. And you also have to look at what happens after the exercise. Because remember, so for example, Russia-Georgia war, right? It didn't take place during the Russian military exercise, it took place afterwards. And, and Russia conducted Three annual exercises that were very clearly signaling preparations for a potential conflict with Georgia, right? Like people mm-hmm. saw that the road to war there that year. You know, the Russia-Georgia war was actually not a surprise for a lot of us. Right. Observance. I just um, expected
0: it to be in Abkhazia, and not South Ossetia. Yeah. That
1: was, that right. <laughs> right. That was. I mean, that was the difference. But but not. But nonetheless, it was not a surprise. It's very clear, folks. Um, I think this time around, when we look at ZAPA, uh, let me let me. Make a few points here and highlight some differences, maybe from 2017. First, Zappa 2017, people expected to be much larger than it was. So it was a much larger exercise writ large, and very little of it took place in Belarus. They only used a couple of Belarus training ranges. If I remember, they were in the eastern part of the country. And so the exercise was downscaled in scope compared to what analysts thought. I think some analysts definitely got burned on it, thinking it would be a much bigger show. Russians downsized those plans. This year, I actually think it's going to be much larger. I think that it's going to be a very different interaction with Belarus. So the Russians in 2017 were trying to play a two-level game. They were pretending yeah. to be victims of this Russian exercise, right? So you can maneuver closer to Europeans, and they were part of the ones that sent out these signals that, you know, Russians might leave troops behind. Right. We could be victimized. We're here stuck like you, having to deal with, you know, right. Russian security needs and all that. Um, and 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 they sort of spurred some of those some of those dialogue discourse in the media. This year, you're going to see first, Belarus being by far the most hawkish, hyperbolic in terms of describing the exercise and its purpose, while Russians are probably going to sit back and let them go at it in the media, right? right? Second, you have a much stronger Russian presence in Belarus. I think we already saw in late May a Russian delegation show up in Belarus to reconnoiter the main training ranges, go over the planned exercise in Grodno and Brest regions. They have five test, basically, training ranges they're going to be using in Belarus, which is a lot more than 2017 and quite a few uh, in Russia as well across the border. You can expect a pretty large-scale use of tactical aviation at these ranges in Belarus and, and helicopters and the like. For folks who are not familiar, I'll take maybe a few seconds to just describe the exercise a bit. So it's going to be September 10 to 16. typically first three days. What they simulate um, you know, is, is a coalition of NATO member states intervening in Belarus, which sparks a crisis— and then this coalition basically is backed by the United States, right? And, then, and, and the whole thing is kind of a provocation for what becomes a regional scale right. and potentially a large scale war. So in the first three days, um, they simulate an offensive operation where they're basically conducting defensive maneuver, sustained counterattack while they generate the forces, right, to, mm-hmm. to, uh, to push back. And quick response forces like the airborne, naval infantry, Spetsnaz, you know, they deploy to Kaliningrad, other places to reinforce units and, and to blunt the initial attack. And then in the next four days, right, um, you know, they they conduct a large counteroffensive, restore Stasco, and bellum things like that. And then they simulate different forms of escalation. So they assume there's going to be a massed airspace attack on Russia. And they assume that, uh, that you know, they themselves would be counter striking across, you know, um, you know this enemy coalition but it's very clearly a coalition composed of of nato member states hitting their critically important objects infrastructure so they typically simulate conventional and sometimes theater nuclear escalation to you know in the in the course of these exercises, they expect it to become uh regional and then, and then large-scale war it's a big stress test for the military
0: right Now, do they, to to bring up something that's kind of an obsession of our our mutual friend, General Ben Hodges, it's a good obsession to have, do they practice sealing off the Sivalki corridor? So that's a good question.
1: All right. Now, my view on us is probably different from Ben's because my view is that the the crisis conflict results from a Russian point of view uh, from an intervention to Belarus, right? And— uh, if they, you know, the 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 notion of the exercise, the way they tend to typically um, uh, reflect their planning in, in the actual execution of the exercise is, first, Russians don't need to deploy forces in the Sewolki corridor. They can effectively interdict it with fires and strikes between Kaliningrad and Belarus. Right. That's one. Uh, don't actually, they don't
0: have to seal it. You yeah, don't have to yeah. actually seal it.
1: Right. Second, they emphasize, right, maneuver and non-contact warfare. There's a big part of their conversation is that the you know modern conventional war is not going to be based on people drawing entrenched lines, World War I style or World War II style with fixed positions. So there's no need to build like a defensive line of entrenched forces across the Swalke corridor to block a NATO advance, nor would that be a good idea. Um, so, and, and of course, the last part is that for whatever reason, they're an assumption that if 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 russian forces needed to make a bridge to and i'm skeptical in fact that they do but if they did that the best and easiest way to do that is to go through a sewalky corridor right um and and that 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 would be a a critical
0: operational objective i'm not so So they need it open as well so they need it open as well as much as 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 nato does
1: well so the way i would put it is that first they can close it without physically deploying a lot of forces there to nato Second. Um, they could make it such that uh, it would be incredibly challenging for NATO forces to want to advance through this corridor in between the Russian units in Kaliningrad and Russian units in Belarus, right? So essentially, uh, the Russian military can very well impose a scenario where there are a host of challenges and dilemmas without necessarily having a large-scale deployment into this part of Lithuania. That's, that's I mean, right. that's... That's an important reality, I think, and also gives the Russian military more options. I'm just a uh, bottom line of uh, Brian. I'm wary of the Suwalki Gap scenario because it's very much a uh, preferred strategy right. uh, on, in our military analysis for something that Russians would do, right? It's highly right. preferable because if they deploy all their forces there, then you know NATO has gotcha. the opportunity to blunt that and counterattack and attrition them in this forward deployed line, and it's very convenient for the U.S. Army and for people who work on precision fires and all that. And if scenario is something other than that, I'm going to tell you, it's probably a lot less convenient. So,
0: And I'm much more concerned about those. Just to to, to, to get, provide a little context for the some of our listeners who may not be aware of this, the Svalky the Savalky Gap or as I prefer to call it the Savalky Corridor um, is is a is a is a narrow strip of land between Kaliningrad the Russian exclave of Kaliningrad and Belarus um, and if it were to be closed. The three Baltic states, latvia Lithuania and Estonia, all NATO members would be closed off from reinforcements and in and, and, and defense from NATO. In the last few minutes, Michael, I just wanted to throw a little political context in Belarus because it's something I've been paying a lot of attention to right now as I'm writing a weekly column on it. You said you expect in the kind of the. Public portion of Zabit for Belarus to kind of be playing the bad cop this time, uh, and, and the Russians will let them do it because it serves the purpose. They're already doing it. I mean, Belarus is basically right now, as we speak, involved in a a, a low intensity conflict with Europe. I mean, they are threatening to dis- disrupt supply chains, for example, between Europe mm-hmm. and Asia, which would most of which pass through Belarus. I think eighty percent of them pass through Belarus. They are conducting military exercises on the Polish and Lithuanian border. Um, Lukashenko has explicitly said he will not he will not stop migrants from passing through Belarus into Europe um, from the Middle East and North Africa. And in fact, there is evidence out there, according to Lithuanian Foreign Ministry, that they are actively helping and enabling illegal migrants to pass into Europe from um, Belarus. And and Lukashenko's mocking the Europeans, accusing them of whining about this. um, So they're they're not even trying to hide it. Then you have situations where ridiculous criminal cases are being opened up against officials in Europe, um, including one against the mayor of Riga and one against the foreign minister of Latvia. So Belarus is already in this kind of cold war with Europe where they're actually behaving more hawkish than the Russians. Is this a red flag to you going into Zappa? But I hadn't thought about it in this context before, but you jarred me to think about it that way. So, I
1: mean, I think it might be a challenge for the Russians because you always have entrapment problems with uh, unstable allies like, like Belarus, who mm. are principally concerned with regime change, and their, uh, their actions are probably driven a lot more by uh, the domestic political crisis, right? I think that's a fair assessment of Belarus over the past year. And they they've essentially been picking fights. They've been picking fights with Poland, they've been picking fights with other European countries, right? And 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 exacerbating this confrontation. Um, I think for Russia, it's first and foremost a challenge of principle and trap, right? Because Russia's actually looking at Belarus as part of you know a regional combat grouping of forces and an extension of the Western military district mm-hmm. from their point of view. And they're looking for Belarus to obviously be firmly in the Russian camp, but they're not looking for Belarus to be this crazy. Like, for example, the episode of, of, the, of, of the forcible uh, downing of that aircraft to take that, to take that journalist, that blogger off of it, um, I don't know what you make of it, but that's the sort of thing that for Russia creates quite a few problems. It may be something that they agreed to, but nonetheless, that created a giant political crisis around Belarus, just as things around Belarus, I think, from a Russian perspective, were quieting down. So I think it is actually a challenge from the Russian side almost as much as it is a challenge from the European side about what mm-hmm. to do with Belarus. You know, Russia's trying to manage the transition from Lukashenko. We know that. We also know yeah. Russia's not very good at managing transitions in the former Soviet space. No, It's just their, their track record and history is not great. right? And we also know that Lukashenko's going to get a big vote. And I don't know if he wants to be transitioned out. You might know that better right. than I do. I'm not yeah, sure.
0: Yeah, no, there's a, there's a sure game of the mouse. There's a game of cat and mouse going on between the Russians and, 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 and Lukashenko at the moment, and you, you hit your nail on the head. The Russians are not entirely confident they can control the transition, but they do. They, they don't like this loose cannon. What do you want? You want to add something? Yeah, I just
1: want to add something. it's absolutely agree. I like. I like uh, your your analogy. The, the aphorism. There's a game of cat and mouse, but as we both know between countries like Russia and Belarus, a game of cat and mouse is only a game for the cat. It's a matter of life and death for the mouse. So. I- that's the difference between states of that of that size and uh, and capability
0: yeah and in Lukashenko is like doing like uh, you know a lot of things that, that that the Russians are not happy with at the moment um, I, I'm hearing from my sources in Minsk that, that, that Moscow is not really happy with a lot of the bellicose actions toward the west the Ryanair thing I've gone back and forth in this thing I don't know how the Russians could have not known it. I don't know how they possibly could have not known, since the air the the air defense systems are integrated, right? And the the Belarusian intelligence is in, is like completely infiltrated by 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 Russia. I, I have. My sources in Minsk tell me they got the intel, for, that the intel came in from, from, from Russia, which makes sense. If you think who has more assets in Greece and get access to a flight manifest, is it Russia or Belarus? No, it, it's clearly Russia, right, in Greece of all places. Um, I One way I looked at this, and I'm not wedded to this, is this is not a theological position or by any stretch of the imagination, but I don't rule out – that this was a reflexive control operation by the russians to basically isolate and turn lukashenko into even more of a pariah in the west which makes makes which kind of completely closes the door on him ever turning back to the west right trying to play his hmm. little game of 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 uh, the, what i call the lukashenko two step you know yeah. playing going to the west and then going to russia that closes that off forever so i don't rule out that this was a reflexive control operation the russians dropped the intel on him knowing what lukashenko was going to do and let it play out that that no again that's not a theological position but I it's, it's a position I've written this um, sure. I, I, I don't rule it out but I mean all of these things happening as we as we gear up for zapid makes me think this year is not going to be the boy who cried wolf it's going to be the time when the wolf actually maybe comes you're oh, a little more conservative on this than I I'm
1: are. always conservative on it but um but here's my view on Brad right. and I, I I don't think. That Russia wants to end up owning Belarus personally in this way, as always, Russian goal is always to control, right, and to have Belarus firmly in its in its uh, uh, in its uh, orbit and as an, an extension of of uh, Western military district as as a strategic military buffer. I also don't see a cause for conflict between Russia and, and the outerlying NATO member states. But I'll be frank that. Um, the, if it's a really large exercise, right, and there is substantial deployment, and there's another context around it that gets uh, outlying NATO member states concerned and worried, and they take their own sort of actions to, because they don't know where Russian tensions are, right, it could be a much more tense interaction between NATO member state forces and those that Russians end up deploying on the other side, mm-hmm. right? So I will say this. I don't think that necessarily anything's going to happen in terms of Russian aggression, but I do think it's going to be a pretty tense uh, August and September, right? That's yeah. it, That we're we're going to be we're going to be talking about this, um, perhaps more soberly than we talked about in the run up of uh, ZAPA 2017. 2017. It was a little breathless running up to Zappa 2017. Right. Here we'll be soberly and cautiously looking at the situation, and understanding that the confrontation four years down the line has gotten us to a place where. Um we really need to take this seriously. We really we do really need to take this seriously, these interactions. Right.
0: No, I, I would agree. And you you were you were a voice of common reason back in 17 when the rest of us were losing our heads. Um, and to, to hear you say that says, yeah, we, we, I mean, we will be talking about this much, much more. What I'm looking for is less some kind of confrontation with NATO than with Russia using ZAPID to, and I, I, I don't want to use the term annexation, but to put a punctuation mark, put an exclamation point on the fact that Belarus is not contested territory. It is it, it is Russia's, even though it's not Russia. And I think yep. that's what I expect to, to to see going forward. Before we wrap up, anything you want to add?
1: No, I think I, I think this was good. It was a one for conversation. And I think you're right. I think that from a Russian point of view, they want to make it clear. Look, buffer states are not neutral. They are somebody's buffer against somebody else, right? right. And, Belarus, and the Russian goal is to show that Belarus, from a security in geostrategic perspective, is firmly in Russia's orbit, right? And that, that sort of contest for Belarus that was enabled by Belarusian, uh, what you call Lukashenko two-step, that game's done. It's done for Lukashenko, right. and it's not, and, and it's over. And, uh, and I, I think in that respect, I agree with you. I think that's a fair point to make, and Zappa's going to underline it.
0: Right, okay. Well, on that note, we will wrap it up and we will certainly be returning to this uh, this topic uh, as we approach September, but that's all we have time for today. I'd like to remind you, you have been listening to the Power Vertical Podcast, which is produced by the University of Texas Arlington's McDowell Center for Global Studies in partnership with the Atlantic Council's Eurasia Center. I'm your host, my name is Brian Whitmore. I'm an adjunct assistant professor at UTA and a non-resident senior fellow at the Atlantic Council. Joining me from an undisclosed location in the great Commonwealth of Virginia, where he is hanging out with his two very quiet dogs, Ivan the Kogi and Finn the Kali. Um, has been military analyst Michael Kaufman, a senior research scientist at the Russian Studies Program at the CNA Corporation and a fellow at the Kennan Institute. Thanks, Michael, for an enlightening, as always, conversation. Thanks for having me on your board again. Was happy hey, to always happy Always great to have you. I'd also like to thank our awesome production team. Lance Legas is in the virtual control room. He keeps all the lights on and all the complicated machines well-oiled and in working order throughout our discussion. And Mariah Jalad handles our all-important post-production duties, cleaning up my messes and making us all sound a lot better than we do in real life. I'd also like to remind you, you can subscribe to the Power Virtual Podcast on iTunes, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, SoundCloud, and TuneIn. And if you do, please leave us a rating and review as it helps our visibility you can also access the podcast read the power vertical blog and access all power vertical products at powervertical.org. and you can follow us on the twitter at power vertical join us again next week and until then i leave you with the ambient sound mix that's been prepared by our production team